The Alcas and Amy. Welcome. It's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot, who called us to live to a higher standard each day and not be satisfied with just a little empty religion in life as a shallow substitute for giving God our best. As our series continues, we'll be hearing from family, friends, and others, all influenced by the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. Hey, it's good to have you with us today. We'll hear a question and answer session from Elizabeth that she'll do a little singing. She'll talk about the Alka or, well, Donnie people, also about her dad's love for birds. We have two special guests, Steve McCauley, son of Ed McCauley, one of the five missionaries martyred in their outreach to the tribal people. Steve was just three when his dad died. What does he remember about his father? Jim Howard, brother of Elizabeth, will also be joining us and talk about his parents and about what they knew concerning Operation Alka. That coming later. First, though, it's part five of our 11-part series, His Eye is on the Sparrow. That question and answer session. Have you heard Elizabeth singing lately? Stay tuned. Advise a young single mother who is trying to change her life to Christ-like and to try to follow and do what God would want. My advice to a young single mother who wants to do these things would not be any different from my advice to anybody else who wants to do them. I do believe that the Lord meets us exactly where we are. If you don't have the kind of solid Christian background that I had, and very few people have anything like as solid a background, of course God knows exactly what your limitations are, and he knows where you are now, and he wants more than you want you to live a Christ-like life and to follow him. I don't know a simpler answer than obedience in the job that he has already given you to do. This person says she is a mother. There is no higher and holier calling for a woman than that of being a mother. As you serve your child, you are serving the Lord Christ. Paul said to the servants in the book of Colossians, that everything they did, which was, of course, very menial work and very much despised and looked down on, he said, don't just do it for an earthly master. Remember, you serve the Lord Christ. And that would be a good motto to put up over your sink. You do serve the Lord Christ. So it is in just the most ordinary tasks, the things which are required of us, um, sweeping the floor, doing the laundry. Uh, If you're a man who has a job which is distasteful to you, Are you the kind of man who is known in the office as the man who will do anything that's asked? We Christians ought to be that kind of people. Ask him, he'll do anything. Nothing is beneath us. And the simpler, the humbler we are, the the more joy there is going to be in the performance of these ordinary duties. Of course, my advice would be pray and ask the Lord to help you to do these things and read your Bible. That's, of course, our source book. Everything that I have to say on Gateway to Joy or in my books, it it has got to be based in this book or it's worth nothing because I have no authority except the scriptures. And it is my purpose to be as faithful 
and stick as closely to the scriptures as I possibly can do. What feelings did you have when you first found out the Alka Indians had killed your husband? What feelings would you expect me to have? Uh, shock, I would say, but not surprise. We knew very well that the men were going into extremely dangerous territory. People had gone in there many times looking for oil and rubber and gold, and none had ever been heard from again. We knew what the risks were, and it was very carefully calculated. And Jim and I had spent hours talking about what I was going to do if he didn't come back. And of course, all I intended to do was to continue there on that station, and I did stay in Ecuador for eight years after he died. I never imagined doing the things that I'm doing now, but that was in the will of God, things that were revealed one step at a time. But I'm thankful for that great lesson that Amy Carmichael taught me, which I think came to me very quickly. Uh, in acceptance lieth peace. Here was something that I could not change. I could not make my daughter not fatherless. She was fatherless. I could not change the fact that I was a widow. And so here's the point where you get down on your knees and you just say, Lord, I didn't ask for this, and I didn't expect this, and I would never have had the grace to ask for this, but I receive it in your name, and I will thank you for it. Help me, Lord, to glorify you as a widow. I read your book, Discipline, The Glad Surrender. In it, you quoted out of a hymn. I'm wondering how the tune goes. I don't know what's happened tonight. I've never gotten questions like this. <laughs> May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. By his power and love controlling all I do and say. When did Amy Carmichael live? I've forgotten exactly. She was born in the 1860s and she died in 19, uh, she was born in the late 1860s and died in either 1950 or 1951. Uh, she was an Irish missionary who went to India and was there for 53 years without a furlough. And she died in India. She wrote 40 books all of which I have read, most of them several times. And I was introduced to her writings when I was 14 years old. And I, it was the headmistress of the boarding school that I was attending at the time that introduced me to her writings. And I was completely hooked. And I've been reading her books ever since. And I strongly recommend that you read her books. If you've read my biography of her called A Chance to Die, note that in the back there is a listing of 14 books which are still in print that she wrote. She wrote 40, but 14 are still in print, although you hardly ever see them in Christian bookstores. She began a very remarkable work for little children who were sold or given to Hindu temples for the purposes of either prostitution or homosexual purposes. Little girls were given for prostitution, and they never could escape from the temples once they were given. And they were given when they were babies. And the boys, little boys were given also when they were babies. And there was absolutely no way that they could ever escape 
Only once, as far as I know, to this day, only one child has ever escaped from that kind of a life, and that was the child that Amy Carmichael said an angel literally brought to her door. And it was through her that Amy Carmichael learned about what was going on in these temples, and she began to pray that God would enable her to save some of these children before they were given to the temples. So when she would hear word about a child that was going to be given to the temple, then she would take whatever measures she could to try to persuade them to give her the child. And so that it came to the point where there were nearly a 1,000 in Donavur, this beautiful place that she established in South India, about 700 children and about two or 300 Indian and foreign helpers. So it really was a very remarkable work. It is still going strong. My husband and I visited there. We spent nine days there when I was working on the biography. I would like to know how you met Glenda of Glenda's story. It was through Gateway to Joy. Glenda listened to Gateway to Joy, wrote me some letters. We got in correspondence. We happened to be in her area. We met her. Uh, she came to the 700 Club when I was being interviewed and brought her whole family along. That's the first time we met her. It is such a story of victory. It is a wonderful story. Any of you who don't know about Glenda's story, it's a book. She wrote it by hand and gave it to me as a gift. It never, in her wildest dreams, crossed her mind that it would ever be published. But I thought it was so well written and such a needed message that I asked her what I could do with this. And she said, well, anything you want. She said, I, it's yours. I gave it to you as a gift. And I said, well, how would you feel if I read it on the radio? And she gulped a little bit. But she said, if you think that it might help anybody, she said, please do. And so. I edited it somewhat and read the whole book on Gateway to Joy. We had a tremendous response. And as a result, Gateway to Joy has published that book. But just briefly to tell you, she was horribly abused as a child. Her mother was a prostitute. And she was forced to sleep with her stepfather up until she was 12 years old. But the difference between Glenda's attitude and so many others who have similar backgrounds is that she never accepted the victimization concept. She never thought of herself as a victim. In fact, the subtitle of her book is Led by Grace. And she is a shining trophy of grace. Could you share a story of meeting and marrying Lars Grin? Lars was one of two seminary students who rented a room in my house after my second husband died. And to make the long story short, lodger number one married my daughter. <laughs> and lodger number two married the landlady, me. <laughs> now, don't you dare go out of here and say they lived together for two years before they ever got married. <laughs> they did live in my house. It never, and I sincerely tell you the truth, it never crossed my mind that Lars was a prospective husband. And when I saw that this particular lodger had a certain kind of an interest in the landlady that I didn't think was very appropriate, I kicked him out of the house. <laughs> and as he told you this morning, it took about two and a half more years of his coming back in a very gentlemanly way. As you can see, he's a southerner, and he's a gentleman, and he was very tactful and very careful. But he did woo me for a very long time. <laughs> And after I married him, my dear little old friend, a lady in her late 70s who had lost her one and only husband, she was from Fort Worth, Texas, 
And she said, well, I, I just want to know now, how did you ever get three husbands? <laughs> and I said, well, I never got any of them. You know, my mother told me, you don't chase boys, but God brought them to me in very unusual ways. And so I told her about husband number three. She pondered that for a minute, and she said, I believe I'm going to rent my house out to three widowers. <laughs> question and answer session and that's part five of his eye is on the sparrow part six just around the corner but first we hear from steve mccauley his father ed was one of those killed in the outreach to the alka people steve was just three years old when his dad died i'm sure we knew what was going on and i'm sure our parents shielded it from us you know as much as they could but I, I don't remember any of it. Uh, I was three, not quite four. I was the third oldest of the nine kids. The only two older than me were Steve Saint, who was a year older, and Kathy, who was a couple years older than him. And Kathy, I think, remembers it pretty well. We came back to the States right after they were killed. My mom was eight months pregnant, and she came back to the States for the birth of my youngest brother. We were here in the States, uh, in the Midwest, her family was from Michigan, for about nine months. And, of course, she was out to speak all over the Midwest telling the story. And they tell me that I did not want to let her out of my sight. Memories from Steve McCauley, son of Ed McCauley, one of the five missionaries who gave their lives to reach out to the Waldani people, or Alka people. Well, it's part six now of our series on His Eye is on the Sparrow. As Elizabeth takes uh, some time to talk about her dad and his love for birds, and what he thought about how you could easily scare them away if you weren't careful. I've entitled my talk this morning, His Eye is on the Sparrow. I had the immense privilege of having a father who loved birds. My father was a bird watcher before anybody ever thought of that term. When he was 16 years old, he used to go out into the woods near Philadelphia and just stand there very quietly with his hands behind his back. He always taught us that if you want to see things and hear things in the woods, you stand with your hands behind your back because any sudden movement of your hands will scare an animal or a bird that you might otherwise get to see. And he would just stand there and listen and when he would hear a bird, then of course he would try to see it and with his bird book identify what it was and he also imitated the calls of these birds. And my father could imitate the calls of 60 different species of birds to perfection. So that when he grew up, he joined the Delaware Valley Ornithological Club, which was just a group of laymen that went out looking for birds in the woods on Saturdays. And my father would sometimes leave the crowd and sneak around into the woods and into some thicket. And he would make the call of a bird that really didn't belong in that area. <laughs> and he would have the whole crowd just plunging through the thorns, <laughs> trying to spot this exotic bird that belonged somewhere else at that season of the year. But my father would often give lectures in 
schools and churches showing slides back in those days. Nobody ever shows slides anymore, do they? But he, he would show the slides and talk about the habits of the birds and, of course, give the calls. He would always end those talks, even in public schools, with these simple lines. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the robin to the sparrow, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father, such as cares for you and me. You all know that lovely song, His Eye is on the Sparrow. House finches, all kinds of finches, are closely related to sparrows, as any of you bird watchers know. Uh, to try to tell the difference between a female finch and an English sparrow, for example, is almost impossible. The females of, of both the finch and sparrow families are almost all exactly alike, sort of brown and white and striped, and it's very difficult. Well, one day, L Lars and I came home last spring from a trip that had occupied more than a week, I think, and we had left the bathroom window ajar. We have the casement kind of windows that have the hinges on the side. So this, this window was left ajar, and we came back to find the beginnings of a nest in the vortex between the window and the screen on the windowsill of our bathroom. Well, the next day there was more nest, and finally the next nest was completed and beautifully lined with uh, some soft stuff that the birds had found, and we realized it was a house finch, a lovely little bird that's sort of purplish and brown. And then one day there was an egg, and the next day there were two eggs, and up till five days we got five eggs. And we could watch literally everything that went on in that nest from six inches away. It's right there on the windowsill. It was a wonderful thing to watch the care of both the mother and the father. The mother did most of the sitting on the eggs, but the father was always hovering nearby, and he had a special little call we could always hear when the father was coming. And the, the, his wife would also <laughs> hear that call, and she'd get a little bit excited and fluff up her feathers. And of course, one day, uh, there was one hideous little critter that had come out of one of those eggs. It was wet and red and featherless and craning its skinny little neck. You can't even imagine how anything like that could have come out of an egg that size. Um, I just studied and studied it, and I thought that there's no way that that thing was in that egg because the whole head alone was bigger than the egg, it seemed to me. But anyway, we watched all of this, and then most marvelously, the way they were fed. And on one occasion, I watched that father bird, that house finch, feed all five of his babies, not missing any one of them, and he didn't go in the same order, but I kept track. And every single one of those five babies got 11 mouthfuls on this one trip. 55 mouthfuls. So I thought, now where did that all come from? I mean, the bird, there's no way he could have had as much as five mouthfuls in one in his beak. And Lars figured out that he was regurgitating which, of course, is what many birds and I think animals also do sometimes to feed their young. 
Well, who taught them how to make the nest? Who taught them how to weave it together? You and I couldn't in a million years build a nest out of straw and sticks and twigs and make it so neatly round inside and then line it so smoothly as they did. And who taught the birds that they had to sit on the eggs and feed the babies when they appeared? Well, of course, it was our Heavenly Father. And his eye is on the sparrow. But we also know that he watches us, don't we? And it's a wonderful thing to think about what Jesus said about sparrows. Are you not of much more value than many sparrows? It's comforting. It's one of the sweet little truths that we receive from Scripture. But then he also says, your Heavenly Father notes the sparrow's fall. God allows sparrows to die and to be shot and to be killed by other birds. God allows all sorts of things to happen. And there was a very unpleasant sequel to this lovely little story of our being able to watch these birds in this nest because after they had all flown, I came into the bathroom one day and there was what looked like black powder on the windowsill inside. Not where the birds could have been, but inside on the windowsill. And I thought, well, now where did this look like soot or something? And I made the mistake of blowing. And I got a face full of the soot. And it turned out to be lice. <laughs> Bird lice, which are tinier than the smallest period on the typewriter. I thought it was dust. So that gives you an idea. So I had creepy crawly things <laughs> on my face and my hair. They got into the bed. I was sitting at my desk, which is a million miles from the bathroom. And there they were, crawling up and out. I mean, they were all over the place. Well, when the birds left, the lice stayed, and they came into the house. And I've always heard that all birds have lice. My mother used to tell us, never pick up a dead bird on the sidewalk, which I always wanted to do, because she said that it would have lice. And I certainly found out that there's this lovely side of God's creation and this utterly horrible and incomprehensible side. And God knew what he was doing when he created those lice. I mean, it was so impossible for us to imagine that something that tiny could actually bite you, bite your skin. We would be waked up at night with these little things biting us. And you couldn't, you couldn't just squeeze, uh, kill one with your finger. You had to take your fingernail. You've seen other kinds of lice, and they, are, they have a hard shell, as tiny as they are. So I want us to think today of the dark side as well as the light side, the side that we don't understand, the side that we would much prefer to avoid. I'm sure that many of you heard about the little boy, I think it was here in Missouri, wasn't he, who got lost, a little four-year-old boy. And the temperature was 10 degrees, and he was gone for three days. And when they found him, he was still alive, and I saw the picture of the old man who had a sort of a slouch hat, uh, looked like a real nice farmer type. And he said, and I looked down on that creek bed, and he said, I saw this little boy there, and 
and that little boy had been warmed by two stray dogs so that they, they kept him warm. Now, God obviously sent those stray dogs, and they disappeared after the little boy was taken home. The man asked the little boy, do you want to go home? And he said, yes. Wonderful story of God's care. But then we know of all the other stories where the child was never found. And God has this mysterious way. You know the words, why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? If Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he, his eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, that's part six of our 11-part series. Well, before we go, we get to hear from Jim Howard, brother of Elizabeth, and he'll talk about his parents and what they knew about Operation Alka, and what Elizabeth's goal was uh, toward her parents. What did she want to accomplish? My parents knew about the attempts uh, that would be made to bring the gospel to the tribe, which was then called Alka. It's now called Warani. But they were probably the only ones or ones of very few people who knew anything about the plans these five men had because they did not want news to be coming out ahead of time. And uh, so I knew nothing about it at all. But when the story came out, I think that, uh, and then of course when my parents heard the news, she just wanted them to be sure that she did have peace of heart even though, of course, she was feeling greatly the loss of her husband, but she wanted my parents to not be fearful for her sake and be worried about her. Jim Howard, brother of Elizabeth Elliot. Well, our time is coming to an end, but thanks for letting us come into your home, your office. Maybe along with you, she did some jogging wherever we found you. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliot Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out elizabethelliot.org. And if you get a chance to leave us a, a review. Speaking of reviews, a short time ago we had uh, a podcast, and Lori said, very blessed message and full of wisdom. Bonnie added, I love listening to Elizabeth. I am 41 years old and read my first EE book through Gates of Splendor back in the 90s when I was a teenager. She has been a faithful mentor to me these many years. And Eighty Tooth adds, I love Elizabeth Elliot's stories on missionaries. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode. Looking forward to more. Again, for more talks, devotionals, videos, and other resources, it's elizabethelliot.org. And until next time, may God remind you each and every day that you are loved with an everlasting love. Underneath are the everlasting arms.